Hello, Ambush, and welcome, welcome to this week's episode of the Desert Tiger Podcast here with me, Colton G. And this week I'm joined by David Diamond and Mr. Zero of the Kings. And we're diving into the 40 year anniversary of their debut album, The Kings Are Here. Yes, we're not only diving into this album, we're also taking a dive into its hit, double, single, this beat goes on, switching to glide. We're also going to be talking about the band's bar days leading up to this album, and how the legendary Bob Ezrin came to produce The Kings Are Here. We're also going to be talking about the opportunities that came after this album was released, like Closing Out Heatwave Toronto 1980, a festival in which the Kings have actually just recovered and released over 30 minutes of live footage from their set on that evening on their YouTube, and they are the only band that has both the video and the audio so that they can bring to you this piece of history. We're going to talk about the memories it's helped to bring the band. We're going to talk about breaking into the United States, getting the opportunity to play on Dick Clark's American band stand. We're going to talk about creating their own label. And from there, we're going to progress into the future where now, in 2019, the Kings have once again released a double single entitled Circle of Friends, a man that I am, and we're going to get the details about that. And well, it's a small world because it is once again produced by Bob Ezrin. So what was it like for this circle to finally come complete for the Kings? All of this and more in today's episode of the Desert Tiger Podcast, and it is all brought to you today by DesertTigerMerch.com, where you go and you cop yourself the latest and the greatest in Desert Tiger Podcast merchandise so you can rep the show every single place you go and show your love. It is DesertTigerMerch.com. We are selling out of some items very soon, but we're also getting new items in very soon as well. So why don't you go ahead and cop yourself something? Alright, so I think it's about time we played a little bit of music by the Kings before we jump into this interview with Mr. Zero, with Mr. Diamond. So why don't we play their new double single circle of friends, man that I am. i 
the Desert Tiger Podcast. Hello. Hey. <laughs> okay, we still have a time delay then, but we're here. <laughs> okay, we'll do our best to work around it. If all else fails, I can I can edit some magic in here. All right. Okay. Great. <laughs> Well, we're just sitting in the car on a beautiful summer day and uh, in Ontario, just 25 miles west of Toronto. I'm glad that you guys could take some time to pull over to have a conversation with me to talk about a uh, important 40-year anniversary for you gentlemen and the Kings. Certainly. We're, we just happen to be in the, the same Mercedes we had back then. Oh, God. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Well, we'll get to the Mercedes, of course. We're talking about the release of your first album, The Kings Are Here, the release of your first, the debut single that took you guys to the top 100 and beyond. But of course, there's a little bit of a journey to get there. So I want to build up a little bit of the anticipation that got you to this moment because you guys spend a few years getting some experience, gigging around, writing songs, playing a lot of the local bar scene in Toronto, and I also want to find out about how a band of three people from Toronto ends up forming a band with somebody who's halfway across the country in BC in 1980 when it's not so difficult because the internet doesn't exist. Well, yeah, this is uh, Zero speaking, and I was living in Vancouver, and that's where I met Sonny, and I knew Dave and Max from uh, our hometown of Oakville, we all went to the same high school. And Dave and Max were professional musicians of playing. And I was a few years younger, and I was just trying to thinking about writing songs. And so I met somebody in Vancouver named Sonny, that, uh, and we started writing some songs. And then we realized that pretty soon after that It'd be nice to have a band because the demos we were doing was, you know, hired drummers and stuff, and it wasn't very good. So I said, well, I know these two guys from uh, where I come from, and uh, we kind of came back and did a exploratory thing. And for some reason, Dave and Max were both not playing in bands at that point. And so we put together a recording session, and then... Uh, realized that there was something there. And then we were sort of back and forth for a while between Toronto and Vancouver, and then decided to move the whole operation back to Toronto, where uh, there was more of a happening scene with the the bars and uh, the ability to play more. So that's why we came back here. So then coming up out of the bar scene and sort of earning your chops, trying to get like the record label started, trying to get noticed, what was it like in the 1980s? Because I mean, now it's a very much different music scene. A lot of people maybe haven't lived through that period. So what exactly was that moment coming up like that? And then getting to the recording of The Kings Are Here was... At that moment, you guys weren't exactly signed to Electra yet. So, were you putting yourselves in the studio? Was this just a demoing process when Bob Erza walked in? What was it like? Well, we we were working on songs and writing and rehearsing a lot and playing shows. And the most we ever did was fifty-fifty cover songs and original songs. And then we won one of these homegrown contests where bands put their tapes in and all that and we won with a big radio station in Toronto and that was a good sign for us and then after that we did get rejection letters from record companies Uh, we did submit stuff and then we decided to go in and try to record an album by ourselves and we went into this studio where Bob Ezrin used to work with uh, Alice Cooper and bands like that and fortunately, he, he had finished doing the Pink Floyd album, The Wall, and then he was visiting the studio because he was back in Toronto from England. And our manager basically played him the stuff and hooked us up. 
So he just happened to be coming back to the studio for otherwise, and you guys were just there, and it just became a natural connection because he liked your material. Well, pretty much. He, like Bob's from Toronto originally, and uh, you know, and has you know part of his family still well, was still back in Toronto, and he had spent a lot of time with Pink Floyd in England, and it was getting well. It was late fall. And we had been in the studio. We had almost finished our own production of the full album, the same songs that are on the Kings Are Here album. But uh, we really didn't know what we were doing uh, as far as tightening parts up and, and the production end of it. And uh, our old manager at the time met Bob out in the lobby because Bob was just there visiting some of the other people he had worked with at Nimbus 9 beforehand. And uh, and said, well, we got a band in there, the Kings, they are working on some original stuff. It's pretty good. Come and have a listen. And uh, Bob heard this beat goes on, switching the glide, and he said, let me take a copy of this home and listen to it. And uh, he came back the next day and said, the kids love, my kids love this song. Everybody loves this song. Let's do something. And then that's how it happened. All right. So Bob also ends up taking the record the demo out to some record labels and ends up getting you guys hooked up with Electra, which for a band that's been looking for a record label who's been rejected by pretty much every Canadian record label there is, that's a pretty huge step. Well, he was the, the you know, top producer in the world at that point because of the success of the Pink Floyd album. So I think that pretty much any project that he wanted to get behind would have been signed well as well as he knows what he's doing and he wasn't going to bring something that didn't deserve it and we had paid our dues and we had some good songs that he knew that he could bring to life and so that was you know the reason that it happened and as you probably well know you know not every band gets charted and not every single does as well as ours did so it was uh it was really great for us. Mm-hmm, definitely. It's your first, like, actual single being signed after you finally actually released a debut album. And obviously, like you said, this isn't exactly the norm. And right away, this single that, I mean, in the 80s, most singles on the radio were three minutes. They were one song, not two songs. And... There's just so many different factors that go into the amazement of the fact that this song just broke through and became what it was. So why exactly did this song have to be packaged together? Did you guys feel that these two songs went together? And was that a little bit of a battle with radio stations and otherwise at the beginning? I think it was more of a battle with the record company because they put out Switching to Glide on its own. And it didn't get any traction to speak of. And we and some of the promo people at the label were lobbying to say, look, put the segue out because we know it's long, but there's been precedent with other two-for-one songs that are long. And, uh, you know, it's just so hooky. You were saying the song is just so hooky that it grabs you and it just flows so well into the other. So... After you finally convince the record label to let both of these songs go out together, does that when it finally begins to gain that traction? Yeah, that's when the the phones started started ringing at radio, and there's a friend of ours who's a very famous uh, DJ in Chicago named Bob Stroud, and we were talking to him a couple years ago. He said the first time he heard it, he said, I got hit ears. And I knew from the first few bars it was a hit. And so fortunately that translated to so many major market FM stations all across the U.S. and Canada that it really broke wide open for us. And then we started playing down in the U.S. the fall of 80 and did a lot of touring and playing with other bands and that. So it was... Uh, it was great for us to have that exposure and you know radio has always been great for us so going into the lyrics of the song have you guys ever been uh accused for many judy's trudy's or donna's of your past of writing a song about them 
Every Judy, every Donna, they all still want her. <laughs> every one of them thinks the song's for them. Every one of them thinks, oh, hey, that song, that's my song, you wrote that for me. Or, you know, it's like my boyfriend used to sing that to me all the time, and oh, I'm so, I just love it, I know. It's my song, it has my name in it. <laughs> no, I, no, it's just that, uh, you know, the whole the whole thing is uh, it's a great concept that, you know, it's just, uh, it's built-in fun time. And um, everybody, you know, everybody gets the no-no, you know, and hear it ringing in the ears and nothing matters but the weekend. And it's just that uh, the whole thing just all fits so well together. That's what is the hook about the song, I think, is it. It's one after the other after the other. You can't get it out of your mind. Definitely. And then, of course, there's the legendary Mercedes line as well. <laughs> well, yeah, that was a, uh, a 1964 220S that was... It had another one that broke down and kind of pulled into a gas station. And this, the other one was on the parking lot for $800 or something. So we got that one. And then... They're great cars, you know, but its life on Earth was was not that long. <laughs> we kind of drove it into the ground. I have the grill, the grill for the cars hanging on my wall down in the rehearsal room. <laughs> well, at least part of it is still alive and being respected and uh, oh, yeah. shown off. <laughs> it has its spot on the wall of fame. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so shortly after you release The Kings Are Here, right away, you're already playing the like pretty much headlining spot of Heatwave 1980 in Toronto in front of tens of thousands of people. This is actually something that you guys have released some of the video from this set for. So what was it like thinking back like that moment being able to have that opportunity after gigging around in small bars and everything else for so often and then I also want to jump into what it was like to go through all that footage again well the the guy that put on the show is a famous Toronto promoter named John Brower and he had put on the Toronto Pop Festival and he's the guy that brought John Lennon to play in Toronto at Varsity Stadium and other band, Lee at the Doors. I mean, lots of, he, he and Led Zeppelin he brought in, and he was a, quite a character and a well-known empresario here. And so he had heard about us, and he was putting this thing together, and uh, again, you know, he just thought we were good enough and belonged on the bill. And so uh, we're on the poster, and, you know, some of the other bands aren't. And we got paid, so that was the other good thing. <laughs> we didn't headline it. We we, we didn't headline. We we fin we closed the show up at the end of the night, but I wouldn't say we were the headliners because there was like Elvis Costello and the Pretenders, the B-52s, Nick Lowe and Rockpile, Talking Heads, Talking Heads, and the Teenage Head band from Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, yes, there's a lot of larger acts, but you guys definitely having that last spot is definitely still a premier location for sure. Oh, yeah. Well, we uh, wanted to play at night under the lights, and so we talked to the people involved, and they said, all right, you know, you can close the show. And then Elvis went on for a long time, but there was, you know, there was still zillions of people there. You can see in the in the movie, the heat wave show that we just put out that, um, there's still a huge crowd there. And of course the sound and lights were great. You can tell by the reaction of the people in the film too, that, you know, they were certainly digging it. Yes, they really were. It was fantastic show. So going through that footage and seeing it again, and even seeing some of the fans, see it again and go through some of their memories. Does that bring back some of the memories of that day that maybe even you yourselves had forgotten? Oh yeah, for sure. It was, uh, well, we were there early, early in the day. So we got to spend quite a bit of time to see a lot of the action on stage and backstage. I remember being in the, one of the food trailers, picking out some some salad and some a bit of snacks and on one side of me was was Chrissy Hines from the pretenders and 
The other side was one of the B-52 gals. I, oh, what's her name? Skips my mind. The one with a big beehive hairdo. <laughs> she sang with R.E.M. there, for shiny, happy people. Anyway, so we're standing in line and just talking like, you know, just like friendly, friendly. Oh, no, that looks good. Oh, that looks good. Let's have some of that. And, then, and uh, it was just the backstage. It was just a big, you know, everybody's super friendly, super nice. That's what I remember. Except we all knew who they were, and they didn't have a clue who we were. That's just the way it is. <laughs> well, of course, you guys were still earning your stripes getting out there, and that's definitely a big part of that. And after this, you start to break out into the American market, playing a few shows there, even getting to play on the American band stand for Dick Clark. So what was it like first breaking into America, and what was it like to play on Dick Clark's American Bandstand? Well, what happened with us was that we were starting to realize that our Canadian management team was, when you're signed to a U.S. major label, our guys probably weren't up to the task. And so we were approached by a guy named Randy Phillips, who came up and banged on our door and said, you know, you guys need somebody down there and he went on to manage Prince and Rod Stewart and became one of the most successful people in the music business and we knew that this guy would be able to help us and so as a result of, of getting involved with him that's when things like American Bandstand came to pass because he's one of these guys that people you just don't say no to him because he's like a force of nature and so and like, a, you know, our guys were not able to do that. And so that's what led to us being on American Bandstand with Dick and Dick Clark. And that was an amazing experience. Amazing experience. All right. That's for sure. And uh, <laughs> remember, we were sitting in the makeup room. This is how Dick Clark did his pre, pre-interview with us, with Zero and I. As we were sitting in the makeup room and, and looking into the large mirrors in front of us, and it was Dick Clark to my right, and then, and then on my left was Zero, and we're all we're looking in the mirror, getting made up before the show, and he just started asking us questions about Toronto, and must be mighty cold up there in the winter, and oh yeah, for sure it is, Dick, you know, and, and then uh, what, what do you like about touring in America? And we just said how great we love being down there and how professional and how great everything was. And then later on afterwards, when we in between the two songs that we played on the show, he does his little interview. He comes out and talks in between the two songs, and he just asked the same question. So obviously, he, he, he's such a professional. He was, was such a professional that he knew how to pre-interview and not seem like an interview. And then he just came out and had it all together. It was a, a quite an amazing thing. Awesome. Well, that's fantastic to hear that you had that opportunity. And of course, those chances like Heatwave, like American Bandstand, it allowed audiences to see your very energetic performance styles. Would you credit that to the years that you spent doing the bar scene, or did you guys also spend a lot of time behind the scenes rehearsing a lot of those movements and actions and the high antic uh, stage show that came with the Kings? The anti-antic. Yeah, we, we were... Once we won this talent contest in Toronto, we hooked up with some people, and we kind of changed our direction and decided to put on more of a show, wear all sorts of funny <laughs> outfits and, you know, have, have more of an image as opposed to being, you know, shoegazers. And and we started playing in, in, in more contemporary music in the clubs, like we were playing The Cars and uh, Cheap Trick and Elvis Costello and bands that had led the way. And then... And that's when our music started to fill into that same kind of, uh, you know, type of music. And so that was pretty seamless. And that's what we always prided ourselves on was that in any given set, our original music fit in just as well as the very popular songs of the day. And, you know, a lot of the times when you go to see a bar band, 
that one stinky song in the middle of the set, that was the original one. <laughs> and that wasn't the case with us. <laughs> That's true. In fact, there would be the odd time I'd introduce one of our new songs as, oh, here's the Rolling Stones new song, new release, you know, just for fun, basically. Of course, the, half the time, the bar owner didn't even have any idea. He just thought we were playing another cover song. But uh, the people knew the difference, that's for sure. <laughs> but we but we did rent a did we rented a uh, a dance studio to practice our our anti antics. Uh, like one of those ones like you see like in, in uh um dance in the night fever, you know, they the where there's all mirrors along a whole big long wall. We set up the band and we just watch ourselves and you know, we, we would play to you know, play our songs and listen to the pre recordings and and work out what we were doing. So we knew, we had a good idea what we looked like, but boy, oh boy, we, I don't think I could jump around like that anymore. How about you, Zero? Oh, I'm, I'm all over it. <laughs> <laughs> You're saying that's a, that's a little different. Yeah, we just stand and deliver, as Zero says now. That's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah, so you guys still uh, you still have quite a bit of energy compared to some groups, but definitely a little more difficult to do some of the uh, swaying and the uh, leg kicks and everything else. Oh yeah, <laughs> it just doesn't seem to it doesn't it doesn't look good either. For if you can't pull it off, don't try. You know.
the Desert Tiger Podcast. So after your guys' second uh, release with Electra, things for various reasons, they end up deciding to part ways, and that ends up beginning the uh, birth of Dizzy. So what was it like to make the decision to create your own record label for releases going forward, and how has it been sort of being more in control of your material? Well, we came back. Um, we were living in L.A. for a while in 82 or something, and then we came back and had a, an agreement with Capitol Records here in Canada, and we put out an EP with them. And then after that, we just kept working at stuff and then decided later that we have start a little label called Dizzy, which is kind of Diamond and Zero, DZ and Dizzy. And that's uh, just sort of the umbrella that we keep it under. As far as, you know, doing it all ourselves, I mean, it's more a matter of necessity than really, you know, um, label deals are great if you can play the game and the money they have and the reach that they have is far more than you're ever going to get, especially these days, because everything radio was owned by the majors, and you can't, you don't really have a prayer of getting on the radio anymore. And of course, rock radio, it's all old stuff anyways, you know. Uh, so it's, but, you know, we just go at our own time and our own schedule, and, you know, it's tough to, to get any traction, but if you love music and you want to do your own music, I mean, you can't really get up or down about the music business itself, you know, because you go crazy trying to make it, so to speak. So we just keep going and do what we can. And and our latest thing is this, this heat wave movie that we knew that it was filmed at the time because we gave permission to do it. And all the other bands, except for Teenage Head, said no to it. And then the sound uh, that was recorded in a remote truck kind of disappeared. And then the the, the, the film disappeared for years. And then uh, I was on a mission to try to find it all. And I was lucky that back in the 90s sometime, I found the film and the sound and made a couple of videos from it. But the technology was so different back then that if you wanted to get a, a video copy of a film, they actually just videotaped a projection on a wall, and that's how they did it. Whereas for this heat wave movie that is out now, there's a lab in Toronto that does a frame-by-frame -frame scan and a digital restoration. So we went in with the negatives, and that's why this new movie looks so good. And it was recorded on an 8-track, multi-track, and the mix that we did, I don't know, 20 years ago, still the balances were all good, but it needed to be remastered. So our original keyboard player, Sonny Keys, remastered it, and and that's why it sounds great. And then editing it took months and months and months because there was no slates on the cameras and there was no way to really get the sound sync. So we were looking at trying to lip read and... And, and look at some of those antics you're talking about, because if we did a kick there, it would be in the same place every night, and then that way we could tell what song it was. I mean, there's one song in the movie called Run Shoes Running that's all shot from behind, and that one was really difficult until it was you, wasn't it? We saw the drum part. There's this one weird drum part, and was like, wait a minute, that's in Run Shoes Running, and so that's the way that we were able to finally sync that thing up because you couldn't see Dave's face when he was singing. So because some of the some of the songs that the film crew didn't shoot the, the entire song. So um, for some reason we don't really know why. So the only there was only part of a song was available or just a, a single camera shot. So that's what Zero was just saying that the one song there it's all from backstage shooting out towards the audience. So you can't tell, you can't lip, lip read that way, or you just have to body read and see what's going on. And um, But it all worked out in the end. It was quite a job. Zero was the man that uh, put this, uh, he, he's the producer that uh, 
a lot of hard work you put into making sure everything is, uh, is well, it's, good. It's as good as it's really as good as it can be because every time, uh, you know, I tried to take a shortcut making this movie, it, you, you know, you look at it and you go, well, we got to It's got to be done right, or what's the point in doing it? So it took longer, and we went to a few different labs and stuff. But this one place, although expensive, did a really great job with it. And so. And then we went, uh, the color correction was done at a place called Red Lab in Toronto by this guy, Walt Bilgis, and he he brightened it up and brought the colors more to life and letterboxed it and everything, which is another, you know, some of these guys, you got to let, let them do their thing, you know, and, and, that, and, uh, and that just makes for a better product. Mm-hmm, definitely. No, I actually just watched the performance recently, and seeing just how all of it comes together it looks fantastic so i really appreciate the amount of work that had to go into this from different studios and different individuals well it you know takes a village right <laughs> <laughs> and you have to you have to realize you have to realize that uh it's shot on film so there is no sound on the on the film so trying to marry, you know, it's it's like a silent movie, and you just it's a, it's quite an amazing task to fit the to make it all just sit properly, you know, and uh, and uh, it's it's a fantastic thing to have. We're the only we're the only band that played there that has any record of this, uh, you know, the original soundtrack and the original film footage. Uh, Teenage Heads. What the, most of their audio was was changed. It was altered. Well, they lost it. They couldn't even find it, and they found one one copy in Alberta with overdub vocals. So, so that just got destroyed. But ours, so ours is the only remaining uh, piece of that of the history of that heat wave heat wave festival. You know, at most ports. Oh wow! So. This, that's fantastic, because that's really, this is one of the only real memories that anyone who's been there or otherwise that maybe is hears these bands and wishes they could have been alive at that moment, they can go back and see this, and this is really the only piece of that history. That's right. Well, there's some audio from some of the shows that was somehow smuggled out on a two-track um, mix. I mean, they weren't supposed to record any of it, but it, it kind of got sneaked. <laughs> and, uh, so there is some of the sound performances out there, but uh, and maybe a few little video clips, but uh, it wasn't like everybody had their phones to record on back then. For sure, and that's true. And you guys are also go- have been going through and releasing some other pieces of history of the band as well, not only just for the video that you did for switching to Glide a few years ago using clips from over 40 different sources, which I'm sure also took a ton of time to put together and not only source as well. Well, that that one took over 140 hours (laughs) to do because all those clips were shot on every kind of different format you can name from film to, you know, VHS to beta cam to beta SP to 8 mil to uh, every kind of format. And they had to all be transferred, you know, into the editing program in uh, Final Cut. And then, you know, the sound sync was really hard on it because at any given night we don't play the song at the right tempo exact to the record so it would go out of sync within three or four seconds that was the challenge to pick out all the the best parts even though they would only last a few seconds and there's some of the american bandstand performance near the end of it we worked out a deal with dick clark productions and we were allowed to put a one minute of the American Bandstand show into our video. That's what they let us do. And we worked out a separate deal with Dick Clark himself to be able to show him introducing the band. And that was a real, really great of him to to let us have the permission to do that and give it to us at what I can only say was a very affordable price. 
Well, and that's very gracious of him for being willing to do so, to continue to assist a band that he had helped years and years beforehand and continuing to do so as time went on. Yeah, and one of my, uh, you know, prized possessions is uh, the agreement uh, with the permission from, you know, the official paperwork with his signature at the bottom because <laughs> he signed it himself. So that's a really cool thing. Oh, wow, fantastic. So one thing more I would like to touch on today is your 2019 release, Circle of Friends and Man That I Am. So once again, deciding to go with a sort of a double single. And once again, this ends up being produced by and mixed by Bob Ezrin. So... What was the decision like to once again do another double signal, and was it just natural to bring Bob in again? Well, we we had we had produced the song and had this tape lying around for a while, and we always knew it had potential, but it was too long, <laughs> and you know the, the the old drums that were on it were horrible, and some of these sounds on it were terrible, <laughs> and really dated. And so, but we, we, we knew that it was good. And so it was a matter of transferring again, the old, uh, eight track tape, uh, analog to the digital, uh, pro tools and then get it so that we could put new parts in it and overdub better things that sounded better and new drums and all sorts of stuff. And then we were mixing it, and uh, like we feel that we're quite capable of producing ourselves and all that, and getting it ready. But when it comes to making this, it sound like a record. We know that we just aren't up to it, um, and we're actually going through that right now, and with another with another new song. But um, and then it was a matter of, you know, it's going to cost us some money, but you know, one track, how much could it cost? And then it was, we thought about approaching, you know, Bob Clear Mountain or Bob Rock or, and then, you know, Bob Ezrin, the three Bobs. And so we sent an email to, to Bob Ezrin. We heard back from Bob Clear Mountain and he was willing to do it. And then um, Bob Rock, who's, you know, from Vancouver, he was busy at the time. And then, but Bob Ezrin got back to us in about 20 minutes from the email of the, of our mix, the demo, the, you know, the demo mix that we sent him, the rough mix. And so he said, yeah, you know, I like it. Yeah, let's do it. And so, and that's what started that process. And then he did some roughs uh, from his place uh, in Toronto that he sent down to, he's got a studio in Nashville. So he'd, he'd, he'd do like the tracks in Toronto and then send them to get processed in Nashville. And then, and when we were ready to do the final mix, Dave and I drove down to Nashville and had a great day in the studio with Bob uh, doing the final mix that that you hear now from Circle of Friends and Man That I Am. And it sounds like a record, you know. It's We're very, very happy with it. And, and that's why it's such a challenge now, I think, to uh, going forward um, because we have lots of stuff that we're working on and we can sort of get it final, but not mixed. And so that's a big hurdle that we're gonna that we're trying to figure out right now. So the future also holds many things for the Kings as well. Well, we have a, a, a few new ideas coming out, and um, we've already laid the beds for a bunch of songs, and we've started going back in. Our studio that we work in was closed for a couple months due to this due to the COVID thing. And so, but we were back in there last week and we're hoping to finish up. And we have a brand new song we've written in this uh, COVID breakdown. And uh, so there is lots going on and um, we feel good about all of it. So, you know, why not? We're all healthy. We're still all healthy and ready to get out there and rock and roll as soon as we can. So we're looking forward to coming out west again. Like being out west. Hey, I'm, I would love to see the Kings. I've actually never seen the band. You guys, Switching to Glide was one of the first songs I ever learned to play with my stepdad, so being able to actually see the band would be fantastic. Well, let's do it. All right. 
All right. Well, I'm very excited. It seems like you guys are bringing out not only a lot from the history of the Kings, but you guys are also have a lot going on in the future, and I'm excited to continue to see all of it, and the audience should as well. So I want to take a moment to thank both of you, David Diamond and Mr. Zero, for joining me here on the Desert Tiger Podcast. Yeah, I mean, we uh, like we said, we started the band out in Vancouver, Colton, so we love us up there. <laughs> so keep the party-itis, okay? Party-itis! Yes, keep the party-itis alive and well. You can find Party-itis as well as the songs that you heard today on the podcast. That being the new double single from the Kings, Circle of Friends and Man That I Am. The track that you heard in the middle, that is the title track from their 1993 album, Unstoppable. You can find all of them on your favorite music streaming service, as well as the Kings, the rest of their catalog, and on their YouTube right now. You can find footage from their set from Heatwave Toronto 1980, and I suggest you do. And with that being said, it is my final roaring DTP thank you to Mr. Zero and David Diamond of the Kings for joining me here to tell us all about the band, the past, and well, the future as well. And I have to go ahead and thank the person who set it all up, and that is the illustrious Eric Albert Madlafferier. And last but not least, the final, final roaring DTP thank you goes to you, The Ambush, for tuning in today, for tuning in and being loyal diehards that you are. If you're new, if you want to join The Ambush, it's so easy. All you have to do is hit subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service, maybe the one you're using right now. You can also help the show with a five-star review or by sharing this episode. That's as easy as taking a screenshot, sharing the picture, and tagging the Kings, the Desert Tiger Podcast, and me, Colton G, so that we can show you some love for doing so. And well, the other way you can help the show grow is by heading to DesertTigerMerch.com and copping yourself some sick DTP merch yeah just like the uh url says it's that simple you go there you cop it you wear the gear everywhere you go you rep the show you share your love of dtp and well we grow together because it's that beautiful next week on the show we're gonna be joined by Derry green of honeymoon suite we're going to be talking all about what Honeymoon Suite has going on. and Well, we're also going to dive into their past as well. And I hope that you join me then. And until then, you know what it is. Put your paws in the sand and journey across your desert. Find your mountaintop, your desert oasis, whatever it is that makes your heart sing and scream to its fullest capacity that makes it burst forward and do it to the greatest of its ability because your voice is beautiful and it deserves to be heard. And until next week, bye-bye. And stay beautiful. Yeah.